the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3, coming to you from the 960 Patriot Broadcast Studio, which is brought to you by the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious metals. I am Seth Liebson, delighted to be joined in studio by our good friend Lewis Hallman. He joins us with his father, usually Hugh Hallman, every Tuesday afternoon, except his father is out of country. So we are delighted to have Lewis. He is the Managing Director of Insight Analytics, LLC. Insight is I-N-C-I-T-E, Insight Analytics, LLC. Do you have to build a arc to get over here today, Lewis? Oh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't too bad. I, uh, I just relied on Silicon Valley subsidizing uh, uh, transportation. Evidently, these electric cars are not doing too well in the winter. Uh, no, no, they are not, actually. The, the biggest issues you see are in Chinese electric cars, uh, where there has been a massive grab for market share, particularly exporting them to India and Europe. And those models in particular are having some real, real issues uh, with cold and heat. There are some issues with our domestic manufactured uh, models, Teslas and the like. You see some headlines out of Chicago, New York, things mm-hmm. like that. But the the really, really dire and dramatic headlines, if you want to see the, the fun explosions, go Google the Chinese electric car meltdowns. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I hate schadenfreude, but I will tell you, um, I think – the we'll get to some deeper stuff in a minute. But it, it's always struck me odd, this push from the government – to, pardon the pun, steer us into a certain kind of car, particularly the kind without a combustion engine, because it just seems like there's always been, if not an emblematic, uh, dis, uh, an emblematic representation, a um, a love affair between the Americans and their cars. You know, that used to just be a sign and sense and. Uh, uh, an exemplar of freedom, you know, uh, freedom of travel, freedom of movement, um, freedom of choice. Americans and their cars, it seems like a hard thing to try for the government to try to get between them on these things. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, we, we've seen sort There's of a romance to it, if you will. Right. And, and there, there's been sort of an ever increasing, I, I would say, amount of regulation in the design, the manufacture and the distribution of, of automobiles, you know, since they were introduced, really. You know, you, you start to see fuel economy stipulations, I think, in the 60s, you see seatbelt laws, things like that, standardizing and sort of improving the, the oh, kind of experience. Mostly around safety. Generally, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, and then later around uh, environmental standards. Right, right, right. And so what we see then, I, 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 would, I would guess, is, is really kind of the, the spiritual outgrowth of that, you know, if, if you will, in that, that we are seeing kind of uh, EVs uh, as sort of that next logical push. Now, whether or not you think that, that EVs are really the sort of the truly green way to go, I think is an entirely different set of questions. Um, so, you know, we, we could talk about, for instance, just the production side, right? To make an EV, you need about twice as much copper and various other rare earth minerals, all of which need to be mined at uh, uh, pretty... Um, using pretty uh, appalling environmental practices, you know, deep pit mining in the Congo, lithium extraction in Chile, uh, all, all, all of these sorts of uh, uh, pieces. And so if you have an environmental 
criticism about the combustion engine. I'm not. It's not obvious to me uh, that that moving uh, 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 all combustion engines to EVs, which would then require us to effectively uh, increase our production of many of these rare earth elements tenfold in order to accommodate that level of demand, which I would also point out has never happened in human history, right? So, we, you know, we can look at the, the California demands for universal EV adoption. And while those are technically not binding uh, uh, law, they are really sort of guidelines that their state legislature has imposed that could be rolled back. But, but Nevertheless, they are, I think, causing a lot more stress on the system because it's very easy, I think, to to want the appearance of of doing good, the appearance of being an environmentalist. But when it comes down to actually negotiating through the opportunity costs, the externalities, and all of sort of the the, the calculus of what is actually efficient and environment and environmentally friendly, I think that many people are, are really unequipped to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to use certain words as maybe you don't, uh, like uh, globalist, elite, America first. They all can mean very many different things depending on the hands uh, whose clay those are in. But it does seem like when it comes to particularly the trucking industry or mm-hmm. long-haul drivers, there has – been this sense of an elitist um, effort to uh, rein them in, curtail. Uh, you saw this dramatically during COVID. There's something about these um, these great truckers that represents something that the elites don't like, and I can't put my finger on it. A I, lot I, of them are small business owners. Yep. So a lot of them are independent. They're not. They're not college educated. Yep. They're small business. So, yep. so really, what, what I see they're is not the, the, the elite. What, what I see is the dichotomy between how conservatives and and the left think about power, the kinds of, the kinds of status and the kinds of authority that we gravitate to, that makes up really the 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 linchpins of the party apparatus. Um, on the left, you see a high degree of centralization in all forms. So this is cultural and intellectual centralization. The left really likes college professors. It likes movie stars. Mm-hmm. It likes uh, 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 glamour exactly. of some kind. And it likes cultural weight. And it likes everyone universally to be focused in at that thing. It likes scientists. But, you know, there, there is a very much a correct way to do things. The, the left is very tracked. Uh, in terms of how it thinks about prestige okay. and status. Oh, that's a good word. The right is not. The right is, is, in fact, in the exact opposite. The right prefers decentralized sources of authority. And so you see religious leaders, business leaders. Independent. Independent thinkers, yeah. right? Independent bases of power, mm-hmm. all of which Independence come, generally, not reliance on... Right, exactly. Was, not, not, in the, not in the political party right. independent sense, right. but in the, right. in the autonomy Lower sense. Right. 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 right, right, Yes. That, that, that I think, is where you see a lot of, of conservative uh, uh, authority really rested, is, yeah. is those sorts of, of institutions. Yeah. And, and I, I think that then, then, you know, betrays a lot of, of what has happened and, and what happens uh, when liberals and conservatives think about power and approach power. So, so if you look at the, the response to COVID, right, this is a classically liberal response if you think about those kinds of power mechanisms. It is an educated, centralized, uh, uh, universalist mandate that is exactly the kind of solutions that, that liberals enjoy. They don't like the idea that people can be left out of their power. Now, this is generally couched in the language of fairness. 
you know, because we, we couldn't have a policy that leaves people out in the cold. And so our policies, ergo, have to be universalist. They have to be broad brush. And if we break a few extra eggs by applying them, them's the breaks because everyone has to be included. Republicans take a very different approach where we are more targeting what is the problem, right? And then assaulting that that particular issue. And we are we are happy to have a spottier coverage on the problem if we don't then impose external costs on people who aren't uh, uh, sort of in that milieu, right? So we, we, Republican solutions generally uh, shy away from that universalist over-engineered you know, uh, uh, um, approach that you, you tend to see on the Republican side for those reasons, because we respect decentralized power and we don't want to step on the decision-making authority and the, 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 the toes of all of those various groups that then make up our, our coalitions. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And if you consider this issue of independence, lowercase i, not, not independent politically in a partisan sense, but independence in, in an individual sovereign sense, there's this... Re, um, retraction from a resistance to is the better word resistance to a a, a one size fits all or a universalist solution to every problem. Um, again, COVID is probably a pretty good benchmark for understanding this. It has to do with managed risk. It has to do with the Republicans and their different responses. The to Republicans wanted you as an individual yeah. to make up your own right. decisions based right? on your own sense of family's right. needs, your own sense of physical health, your own sense of any number of considerations. And that is, you didn't want the nanny state telling you, well, we're one size fits all here. It's, that That is the essence of that decentralized right. power structure and the focus on local control. Right. And the focus on local control as local as you can get it. Um, but not local government control necessarily because as we've seen with various states, they can be as one-size-fits-all and as bureaucratic and as oppressive as the federal government. What do you think would be ultimately more oppressive, the Trump White House or Gretchen Whitmer's Michigan? You know, um, Lewis Holman is my guest from Inside Analytics. Nothing we planned on, but that's what you get when you get a brain like Lewis's. You can throw anything at him and he makes it interesting and learned we're going to pick up on some of this when we come right back, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, coming to you from the 960 Patriot Broadcast Studio, which is brought to you by the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious metals. Lewis Hallman is my guest. Lewis is L-O-U-I-S. Hallman is um, just like it sounds, H-A-L-L-M-A-N, not anything you can do with Leibson. Uh, which requires remedial education often, even for myself and young David. Let me stick with just another ha- with this for just another half moment, uh, Lewis, if I if I may, because what we were describing the one size fits all, the universalist approach versus independence, the more independent minded, the more resistant towards greater government control. Originally, I mean, the phrase that would naturally trip off the tongue right around here is that uh, we conservatives, or even maybe in a different day we would have said we Americans, cherished what, and the phrase would be, was considered rugged individualism. And that phrase has an interesting pedigree. It comes from a speech of Herbert Hoover's in 1928. I just want to give you the lines because, you know, some of these things just resonate to the core of where we are today, and I think we sometimes forget it, the progeny. He says, 
we're challenged with a choice between the American system of rugged individualism and a European philosophy of diametrically opposed doctrines, doctrines of paternalism and state socialism. The acceptance of these ideas would mean the destruction of self-government through centralization and the undermining of the individual initiative and enterprise through which our people have grown to unparalleled greatness. Wow. How trenchant and poignant and and, and appropriate is that even right now? And I, 1928. I want to unpack that. Almost that, 100 years ago. I want to unpack that notion of rugged individualism sure. a little more because it's one I think that the left will, upon hearing it, they'll salivate and then they'll, they'll, they'll try to spring some rhetorical trap imagining it to mean something I think profoundly different from how I, we, we, we intend it. I'm afraid <laughs> they'll take our cars and guns. <laughs> the, well, the, so, so the notion of rugged individualism that the, the, the left really likes to, uh, uh, to, to satirize and to lampoon is the sort of the, the, the man is an island notion, uh-huh. right? Which is, which is wrong. That's not what we mean. When we say rugged individualism, we don't mean personal autarky where you create your own shoes and farm your own food and you are a man right. in the wilderness as right. an island. That is right. not at We're all not what we North mean. not North Dakota separatists. Correct. Right. <laughs> what we mean when we say rugged individualism is precisely the absence of that paternalistic, gubernatorial, uh, uh, top-down uh, power structure. It is the the use of the communal structures that the left simultaneously loves to talk about, but then uh, uh, always seems to want to wrest power away from, right? It is the it is the local churches, local civic organizations. All of those organizations that, that existed at the time Hoover was speaking, mm-hmm. but have increasingly vanished as we are now bowling alone, if I can steal the yeah, title. The Putnam thing. Yeah. And so what what we what we need to have when we think about rugged individualism is is strong community centers where we can where we can discuss where we can uh, uh, share resources where we can share strategies uh, you know it wh- where we can actually lean into the entire village of that that shared and local humanity that we have and in doing so you know we can create a a freer society a more happy a more prosperous society and one that is not bound by the diktats of those that have no idea what the local conditions are and are legislating from thousands of miles away uh, and under entirely different economic guises. I'm sorry, but a policy wonk in the Beltway probably is not the best guy to adjudicate the pricing of goods in South Dakota. doesn't make sense. They have totally different economic climes. They've got totally different needs. And those that are locally used to the conditions on the ground should be the ones ultimately to uh, uh, decide what goes on and and to establish the rules. The word individual keeps coming up in my hand in my head, especially as opposed to the notion of paternalism. It's it's kind of an interesting familial paternalism is a familial term, right? About fa- fa- father, right? An overarching father, uh, or one might say even a, a big brother, if 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 you want to extend sure. it outward. <laughs> But this has from Hoover really to Buckley to Goldwater. But Goldwater, I was just looking up as you were talking, Goldwater's focus on the word individual in his book Conscience of a Conservative. Um, He speaks about we believe that the people's welfare depends on individual self-reliance rather than on state paternalism. There's that word again. While Congress annually deliberates 
over whether the increase in government should be large or small. We've 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 kind of conceded an individualism away to a debate about how much individualism we should have. Right. And it's kind of an interesting word that we've gotten away from. And the it's essence all, of the individual. And and it's a profoundly recent shift as well. You know, yeah. the, the advent of the federal income tax yeah. was in the twentieth century. Before that the entire federal expenditure was sub 1% of GDP, typically. And so this notion that government should control and should directly spend 25% plus of our economy is insanity, right? This is a very new delusion at where we have decided that all of our, of, of our output should be centrally controlled in that way. This was great. Thank you. And actually not a bad springboard to what we actually were planning to talk a little bit about, which were a few different articles, one on uh, one from The New Yorker on the problem with boys and men as they cast it, as they pitch it, uh, one on gender tensions and one on something we kind of touched on a little bit in the past discussion, which is in the past uh, couple minutes of discussion, which is the um, rule of expertise, the role of expertise, the over-intellectualism, the, the ceding of power uh, to expertise, which is really a, 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 a beautiful, a beautiful uh, emblem of, of what progressivism stands for, right? If, if I could just articulate Please. something with that sure. um, on, on the notion of, of expertise. Like, yeah. I, I would charitably consider myself a fairly expert person, uh -huh. and yet if the the notion that someone like myself should be handled the entirety of governmental and decision making power yeah. is nightmarish well, i am but, ignorant of 99% of human knowledge right understood i am not but played knowing you, king. but knowing you and this is what makes i think a worthwhile observation to make about you is if you were ever put in that position your expertise would likely lead you to say things like that's not my job people should decide for themselves. That's what your expertise would probably lead you to say in most instances. Right. I'm guessing. And, and my natural laziness, yes. Well, no, it's not that. It's, <laughs> you know it's not that. You, no one who knows you can, under, can say you're lazy. But you understand the point, which is to say, no, I un, my expertise leads me to understand the role of man in society. And in a free society, the role of man, by and large, is for him to exercise his individual freedom and make these decisions for himself. That's what your expertise leads you to. That's your expertise based on history and philosophy. That that is, it would be difficult to say it better. Frankly, that Thank is exactly you. right. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. We'll get to our tripartite breakdown of where we are with Lewis Hallman. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, brought to you in part by our good friends at the Midas Gold Group. And they tell me the U.S. government and the Fed will have no choice but to eventually steer interest rates lower because if they don't, the current level of interest rates will bankrupt the nation. There's no telling when that dam will break. But when it does, Midas wants to make sure you have flood insurance, in this case gold. Call Midas Gold Group now. Look into the opportunities gold can provide you as a way to diversify your investments. Call 480-360-3000 or go to MidasGoldGroup.com. Midas Gold Group is the nation's number one veteran-owned gold IRA firm. Protect your assets. Call 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Midas Gold Group, always faithful. MidasGoldGroup.com. Lewis Hallman, always faithful. 
Gender, race, and over-intellectualization of things um, seems to be... It's like the three legs of the Democratic Party right three now. Three legs or the... Th- yes. The, the three camps, uh, Yeah, perhaps. the three camps. By, are they, and they march together, you know? <laughs> you can't say that about we conservatives. There's a lot of camps and we're not marching together. Go to well, the state GOP meeting this Saturday. You'll see what I mean. <laughs> well, yeah, so so, so the, the way I see it, and I, I think we've talked about this a little bit on the show before, is that you can really fractionate down the, the Democratic Party into three or four groups, yeah. really. And, and those groups are uh, minorities, racial and cultural minorities, uh, women, mm-hmm. uh, organized labor. And um, the academy mm-hmm. or the, the, the cathedral, if you prefer that term. Um, and then on the right, you have a, a variety of groups. You've got evangelicals. You've got uh, uh, rural voters. You've got national security conservatives. You've got fiscal conservatives, whole, whole group of, of people. What's interesting about these two groups, though, is that the Republican Party coalition, while smaller overall, is internally cohesive. Which is to say that those different groups, while they value different things, the things that they want are not mutually exclusive. They can all be satisfied holistically and everyone can get along and everyone can support everyone else and vote for the same stuff. On the Democratic side, this is not the case. If you think through the policy positions needed to appease racial minorities, women, organized labor, and elite academic types – All of these policies that would be required are very often at odds with one another. And so the way that Democrats win elections generally and the way that they've done so over the last 30 years or so is that when the elections are on hard policy conversations, those uh, uh, issues, those fractionations in their party apparatus are displayed. They turn on one another and they lose. Mm. If the Democrats are able to run behind a charismatic candidate – who then doesn't talk deeply about the issues, but then talks about all of the great change and progress and the, the long arc of history and how all of these great promises will be fulfilled, those candidates win. And I would say classically the candidate like this is Barack Obama. You know, what's interesting about those divisions is they've happened a couple times over the centuries. This was a debate between Frederick Douglass and Elizabeth Cady Stanton about whose rights come first. Right. Are we going to deal with black suffrage and black civil rights or women's suffrage and women's civil rights back in the uh, 19th century. We saw that interesting fight play out a little bit in 07 and 08 between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Absolutely, right. You know, we saw a kind of a repeat of that in both cases. It went obviously towards the racial before it went towards the gender. No, I don't think it went either way. It went strictly towards the charisma. Barack Ah, Obama ah, did not not articulate anything strongly at all. If you look look back at that campaign, there is no great manifesto of his. There is no great vision or victory. It was personality driven. It is personality politics. That is the only way the left wins. That's interesting. Can hate... Yes. Be a generator of can it be a fuel for oh, for, for a winning coalition? Absolutely, yeah. and I, I would I would look at the uh, the Democratic uh, uh, candidacy in twenty twenty. Yeah. Joe Biden is not pro anything. Right. That race was not pro That's anything. What I was thinking that was a personality race anti Trump. Now the question remains: now that we've seen Joe Biden and now that we've had Trump as well, you know, now, now that we've known it's now we know 
collectively, it is not literally the end of the world if Trump is at the White House. And we have now seen the fundamental alternative. It might have been. Now we can legitimately have that election. And I think a lot of the wailing and gnashing of teeth and kind of the the arcane craziness that the left had in 2016 where, oh, it's never happened before. What way will the world end if this random guy gets into the office? The nukes will be flying. Like you, you would hear talk like that in 2016, if you'll recall. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We had all the it was, talk. Trump was considered by many credible people on the left to be, quote, an existential threat to the republic. Yeah. And they say it again. They read the problem is they forget that there were four years of relative. Right, we late. did it. Yeah, we actually. Well, what's the word I'm looking for? We had it. We have a, We we actually have experience here. <laughs> Let me take a quick break. This was a short segment. We'll come back more on gender, race, and over intellectualizing. You call it the cathedral. I like that. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Lewis Holman, Insight Analytics LLC. That's where he hangs his hat when he's not here Tuesday afternoons. Um, Gender tensions, race tensions over intellectualization, which you are calling kind of a cathedral. Uh, You you are saying, if you will, the 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 uh, what the the governance, the um, supremacy, if you will, of the academy or what you like to say is the cathedral so, unpack that for yeah me. so so I'm, I'm sort of stealing a phrase uh and and maybe applying it not entirely correctly so so the cathedral is a concept created by a guy named mencius moldbug um <laughs> only yeah. you oh, only me only I, I, I pay a lot of attention to sort of uh intellectual fringe because why not there's some interesting stuff going on there and the cathedral is a notion that was popularized i think uh, around the time of trunks trump's election to describe the uh, sort of priestly class uh, and the uni- the unity of the media complex and the education complex in that they would seek to uh, uh, control narrative and culture and create sort of a a pseudo-religious dictum, right? You see this in the fall of the science stuff that we we, we and cathedral comes from the is a religious idea, right? Right, and, and so the, right. the 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 notion of a the seat of a bishop, class really. of scientism, right, right, right. as the cathedral, I, I, I think is very appropriate. Okay. And so that, that's where I, I'm really stealing that term from. I would encourage uh, those listening to go ahead and, and Google around and see, see if they're interested in that concept, the cathedral. One, one definitely worth looking into. And who is the... Uh, Mencius Moldbug is the guy that came up with it. <laughs> Michael Malice will talk about it very frequently. Uh, there are a number of people on sort of the libertarian right that will talk about these things. I sometimes wonder if there are officials at Amazon that, uh, because we sometimes raise uh, somewhat obscure intellectuals on this show... If they sometimes say, wow, look at the uptick in sales for this guy in Arizona. <laughs> you know, what's going on in Arizona? How did he, why did he sell five books on Thursday? You know, <laughs> I sometimes wonder about that. The racial tensions, the gender tensions. Let's talk about the gender for a second. This New Yorker article. There's a lot to the gender thing. There's obviously the sex changing stuff, the trans... The transitioning stuff, the transgender rights stuff, the bathroom wars, the school wars with regard to all of this. Now it's entering the corporate world. I don't know if you saw the legislation in California where stores now have to um, – stores of uh, 500 or more employees now have to comply with 
with having transgender sections. Honestly, Seth, I, I think most of that, that the but trans stuff the is, is a, that is a game. Like, all of that is a distraction. Like, trans people are so vanishingly rare that, that frankly... You wouldn't know it. We could ignore them from the conversation. Like, if we dedicated all of the time about trans issues to talking about the issues between men and women in this country, we might actually make some progress. I know. That's part of it, though, isn't it? That you have what um, no one ever would have probably gone a minute throughout the course of a year thinking about right to it's all the time everywhere as if you know as if it's the population of something that's punching much higher than its actual population well, i mean some of it is volume but some of it is weaponized politics right and and, and this is also happening in an environment where where we have algorithmic social media Correct. right which is its own you know attention seeking nonsense and and you know outrage is what Cells and what motivates so much of media, so much of of storytelling, is is really just outrage bait. And so it's very easy to get real a lot of people really upset about you know trans issues from the left or the right because either oh you're being a big meanie or there's this dude in the women's restroom. What's going on here? You know, both sides can can very easily find ways to be aggrieved at at, at, at these issues, and that causes the conversation to just utterly grind to a halt but can keep us then throwing attention and money at the people who are then talking about the problems that you know w- with the trans issues which is a very lucrative market for them and the social media types that then run these things because again it's not about finding solutions it's about monetizing attention for these people there would be no MSNBC for example right but on the social media front i was saying yesterday you're not old enough to remember though maybe your study of contemporary or current events would would put you um in uh, in understanding of what I'm about to say, but when you remember the 2016 election and you remember the tenure of Donald Trump and you remember the marches and the protests and the epithets of fascist dictator Hitler, worse than Hitler, that kind of stuff, I remember it too with Ronald Reagan. I remember it with George W. Bush. But go to Reagan for a moment because all of that was there, and certainly the protests with people wearing gas masks as if he was going to create some kind of nuclear winter. Um, people would draw shadows of chalk bodies on the, on, the, on the sidewalks as if he was going to start another Hiroshima. And I wonder if the volume and the level and the temperature would have been the same. The heat would have been the same if there were social media then. Because something tells me I think it would. So I, I actually agree with you there. I, my, my hypothesis is that we, are, we actually haven't changed that much in the last 40 years. Yeah. It's not that we're any crazier. It's that we are so much more easily able to see just how crazy we all are. Because now everyone has a camera and a mic. And so, you know, only the most outlandishly uh, uh, absurd and uh, uh, logistically feasible crazy events would have been covered back in the 1980s. Now, everyone's got the camera in their pocket. We're all uploading it all of the time. And it is all rank ordered by us for free by liking and commenting. We are training the algorithms to automatically be able to notice, recognize and promote what is popular. We are training those AI ourselves for free. Do you know what this does, though, to me? I, thank you for that. It it, it normalizes um, or it uh, cosmologizes the aberrant. Sure. And in some cases, it normalizes delusion, too. Yes, very much. And, and so that, that's a huge notion, right, uh, uh, where previously in the 1980s, if you were a complete weirdo, like if you had some bizarre, bizarre fetishistic interest – 
you would never encounter you someone were a in complete the real weirdo. World. Right. right. <laughs> and so, but now with the advent you get of a following. online forums, <laughs> right. you, not only can you find like-minded people, right, who just share the interest, but now you can, you know, create pictures and guides and games around it. You can promote it. You can expand the following. And so, not only is it a tool for connectivity, it is also a tool for promotion. And you can get credence out of it. You can get credence out of it, particularly if it's – and I think this is where kind of – I talk about lab leaks, not from Wuhan, but from the White Ivory Towers here in, in America. Because you will, you will always find some weirdo in the cathedral who got – yeah, go ahead. You know where I'm going. Attention and money will legitimize weirdness. Yes. So like video games, right? In the 80s – you know, nerds play video games, right. but now you can have professional video games. You can have esports as a legitimate enterprise, right? You can have people now who create uh, 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 fucking underwear for Target, and that is a that is a legitimate career path that someone can take because we have set the scale of the enterprise at such that that is now sustainable. People can comment, people can interact, with and it. you can have seven million able-bodied working age males sitting in a basement playing with them all day long. Absolutely. Lewis Holman, I'm going to let you wrap all of this up into a neat bow and present for us when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, portions of which are brought to you by our good friends at Y-Refi. Y-Refi has a secure and collateralized portfolio you can invest in and earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. That's 10.25% fixed rate of return. It's not correlated to the Federal Reserve or the stock market. And they invest power, flexibility, and control in you. You can turn your income on or off, compound it, whatever you like. There are absolutely no fees. No attack on principle if you ever need your money back. And, of course, you get a monthly statement with no surprises. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI24. Lewis Hallman has been my guest. I'm sorry you had to bear witness to that little spat between young David and myself during the break. But that's how we roll around here. It works out. Usually we'll all say something. He'll argue with me, and then we'll prove that I'm right. It's kind of our dialectic around here. I submit a thesis, he has an antithesis, and then the synthesis validates the original thesis. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> well, I, I mean... I you'd appreciate that. Oh, always, always. Uh, but, we, you know, we really did cover quite a lot of ground yeah. today. We, you know, we, we tov- covered uh, the, really, the three main groups in the Democratic Party, which is to say uh, uh, women, uh, cultural and racial minorities, and the cathedral. And, you know, we, we talked through uh, the fact that the left tends to favor a really centralized uh, uh, power structure and that they run their campaigns fundamentally on charisma over issues. Because mm-hmm. if they get into the issues, they start to claw apart the, uh, the foundations of their entire coalition. Mm-hmm. Now we're at the point looking at the 2024 election cycle where... Ramaswamy dropped out. Uh, DeSantis has dropped out. It looks like it's going to be Trump at this point. Mm-hmm. It, it really does. And so now that we, you know, we we have the ability to unify behind a party, I would I would challenge us to make this as much about the issues as possible. Let us find exactly those fault lines and pound on them in such a way that we can hive apart this coalition here. So we should ask, and we should we should get clarity on. How exactly the Republic, the Democratic Party would like to handle uh, foreign wars going forward? We should have that debate loudly because th- there will be elements of them that are pro-interventionist and elements of them that are anti-interventionist. We can then 
take advantage of that division and amplify it, causing them to uh, uh, fail to show up at the polls once they, their leaders betray uh, uh, values that are antithetical to their core. Well done, Lewis, and thank you for that. And uh, we'll pick up on some of this uh, tomorrow and with you again next week. I'm so excited. Yeah, I, I want to come fun. back next week, if I may, yes. with Piaget's uh, uh, developmental psychology and how that relates to our political awareness. Yeah, I think that'll be great. And the folks at Amazon will be scratching their head and saying, look at all those sales of Piaget in Arizona. What's going on there? Great. Uh, on behalf of Lewis Hallman, on behalf of David Dahl, I am Seth Leibson. Thank you for spending some of your day with us. Until tomorrow, God bless you all, and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.